This is MJ. I'm an author, I'm an artist, I'm an analyzer. You can find all my work at mjmonios.com. Welcome to Skimming Leaves. This is going to be episode 42 of Story Over Everything, if I've done my job properly, which hopefully I did. And it's going to be on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is book three in the Harry Potter series. And I listened back to my notes that I recorded on this, I don't know, month or two ago, and I just drop right into it. So, uh, because of that, partly, and because it's the habit I formed for doing these, uh, I'm going to go ahead and do a quick introduction to the book, um, kind of fun fact type thing, and then I will let myself transition into the actual, like, almost gut reaction uh, of presentation of my thoughts on the book as a whole uh, that follows. So, <laughs> the Anyway, so here we go. Uh, let's see. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban was first published in the United States uh, September 8, 1999 by Scholastic. Mm, interesting. Uh, the book has 107,000 words, according to one source, and 117,000 plus words, according to another source, which is very strange to me. Supposedly, the average reading time is 4 hours and 47 minutes. I am assuming that's a person reading to themselves, and the audiobook version is... Almost 12 hours long, which sounds about right. And that's I think that's based on the, the Jim Dale audiobook. I don't have the number in front of me. But, yeah, so uh, those are just kind of very basic. Uh, it's a very basic set of information about the book. And while I did read this book, and I will... Uh, well, obviously, I read the book, or those of me talking about it. <laughs> well, I read the book, and uh, I hope you have read it, too. If you haven't, I would like to interest you in reading the book a little bit by sharing a couple things with you about it. Uh, first of all, I don't have nostalgia for Harry Potter, uh, the Harry Potter series uh, of books or movies, actually, because I didn't watch all the movies, and I only read the first two books uh, as a kid. So... There's really no nostalgia there for me. However, as a grown man, as a consumer of stories, as somebody who, uh, as an aspiring writer, wanted to get literary, and I, therefore I uh, consumed quickly The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Cimmerillion, The Chronicles of Narnia, which are actually very, very, very well-written books, um, and some other stuff with like a concerted effort of, hey, I want to you know, read these things and understand from them and, and learn, you know, basically uh, graft, you know, graft? I want to read these things and absorb craft stuff from them uh, for writing my own books, and I want to write in the quality level of these books. I would argue that Rowling has done that, that she, um, these books are all competently made. I've read the entire series, and it's very good. Um, I don't have, like, a personal, uh, like, a super strong emotional attachment to it, like, oh, these are my characters, I'm ride or die for these guys or whatever, but I do like them, and I do like the story she tells. It's a little odd, like, there's some odd choices in some places, but for the most part, it's, you know, it takes, you know, the, the book series took me on a ride that I did not expect and didn't really predict, and I think maybe this book is where things start becoming a little more... Uh, or less predictable, rather, and more interesting and far more nuanced than I would have ever expected. And, I don't know, it just, like, really expands the world, which is something I do talk about in the um, in the following audio segment, so I won't belabor it now. I'll just share some things with you about it. So, yeah, as a person who uh, 
thought you know people who love Harry Potter were a little silly, uh, and then finally read the series for myself. I understand you know what everybody's crazy about, and I understand how good of a series it is, and I really am impressed by it. And uh, like I said, I think you know definitely uh, you know, this book is really good. It's Azkaban like. It quickly become, became one of my favorites, which I hope I don't say later, but I'm saying it now. Anyway, just a couple more things about it real quick. I'm going to try to be as spoiler-free as possible. That was all broad and generic stuff, um, but there's some specifics I'm going to skirt around in this uh, information I pulled up real quick looking it up online. So, according to this little thing that I found, let's see. <laughs> okay, apparently this book sold 65 million copies worldwide, which is very cool. Very cool for Rowling. <laughs> no wonder. No wonder. Anyway, uh, so, well, do I want to talk about that? No, I don't. <laughs> There's a crazy, powerful aspect of magic that is introduced in this book that did not, I did not see coming at all, and apparently Rowling regrets it, so uh, see if you can figure out what that one is. Um, Oh, this is really cool, though, and I can talk about it. There's a, The Patronus Charm is introduced in this book, which uh, I'll just read it. It's a powerful defensive spell that conjures a silver animal guardian. The shape of the Patronus reflects the personality and inner qualities of the caster, which is really cool. And apparently, a Patronus can change over time. It's almost like she made magical Pokemon, except they're just animals. Yeah, but that's still a really cool idea. Uh, the book reveals the identity of the mysterious prisoner of Azkaban, who's in the title, which you should just expect, perhaps, uh, and the whole drama of the prisoner of Azkaban and what he did and didn't do uh, is super interesting, and I think you'll find it <laughs> super compelling. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, let's see. The book features several new characters, such as Professor Remus Lupin, the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, uh, Professor Sybil Trelawney, the Divination teacher, and a seer, or prophet-type lady, uh, and the Dementors, the soul-sucking guards of Azkaban, who induce fear and despair in anyone who comes near them. And I don't remember if Rowling introduced the Dementors by name in Book 2 or not, but Azkaban Prison was introduced in Book 2, and here it is, featuring in Book 3, which is something really fun, I think, that she does. Uh, the book supposedly contains many uh, references and allusions to other works of literature and mythology, uh, such as the Grim Fairy Tales, the Arthurian Legends, the Norse Myths, and the works of Shakespeare, Dickens, and Wilde. For example, the name... Uh, I can't name that person. <laughs> but somebody in David Copperfield... Uh, is shares the name with somebody here. Uh, yeah, there's a couple characters who have names linked to Roman mythology, which is a huge spoiler. And then uh, Sybil Trelawney, the divination teacher, she's derived. Her name is derived from Sybil, Sybil, a prophetess in Greek mythology or Greek and Roman mythology, actually, which is really cool. So uh, anyway, those are just some fun facts about the book. Before I go ahead and talk about it, and uh, like I said, these were spoiler-free as best as they could be. Um, and then I'm going to get into the full spoiler talk. So, again, I highly recommend the book. I think it's cool. You should definitely read the whole series. Um, if you have Cloud Library or Hoopla, if you have access to those, you can get the audiobooks for free. Or you can get them... Actually, I think all of uh, the Harry Potter series is on Kindle Unlimited right now for you to read with your eyes. I'm an audiobook person, though, so uh, getting them on Cloud Library and such for free was really awesome. Or you can just buy the books outright, because... You know, they're good stuff. Audible collection, if you're an Audible person, depending on the length of the books, you can get one a month and very happily, very comfortably listen to the entire series 
which is, I don't know, seven times, I'm going to guess. It's like 70, 70, or, 70 or 80 hours of entertainment, um, which, depending on how long it takes you to consume your audio, that could take, you know, a week. <laughs> no, not a week. Uh, that could take a couple weeks or, you know, a couple months to enjoy. So, anyway, I, I highly recommend, recommend it, and now I recommend that you listen to the rest of this episode. So I'm picking up on a pattern that Rowling is doing, and honestly, a sneak peek, I'm already, I already started Goblet of Fire, so, which is book four of the Harry Potter series, so in Prisoner of Azkaban, I see that she does a recap, just like in the beginning of Chamber of Secrets, she did a bit of a recap, you know, introducing people who are new to the series to the story so far, essentially, and I think it's done in a fairly naturalistic way, I don't remember how it was done in, uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban, but except for like, um, perhaps Sirius Black appearing on the uh-uh. Muggle News and that, you know, from the narrator warranted uh, comments about how he was actually a wizard and he'd been accused of this and it was this many years ago and involved Harry's parents and Harry and Harry's this wizard, Voldemort, you know, it basically it does a really neat uh, recap. I think the Goblet of Fire recap is even better and smoother, uh, which is interesting, but I'll talk about that more when I discuss Goblet of Fire. So, I found, I found it interesting that, I guess, kind of spoilers for, uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban, it's kind of a weird, offbeat book. So this is my third Harry Potter book, and... I like it the best so far. The uh, the last, I don't know, couple chapters or so did something very interesting that I didn't expect. It made sense, and it almost made it seem like it was a... It's not a heist movie, but it, or book, but it almost made it feel kind of like a heist book where there was a high-stake, you know, sneaking and stealth, and we have to plan things just so, uh, kind of aspect to it that was pretty interesting and I mean in the grand scheme of things the way that played out specifically wasn't no. as exciting as it could have been no. hold on hold on no. it wasn't as exciting as it could have been like it wasn't well I mean the stakes were high uh, no. but again I'm trying to avoid spoilers in these casual book chats but um, it's just I don't know like it could have been higher it could have been a lot worse and it just almost seemed more like oh this is kind of lovely it's kind of lovely getting to see this plan come together and see these threads pulled together and see these uh, really, you know, open loops closed that had been uh, shown to us throughout the book, throughout the story. So, that was pretty interesting. Um, I like how, like, extreme Harry gets, and I, I guess a minor spoiler, I would say Voldemort doesn't really show up in this book, specifically, which I was under the impression that he was in every single book. Um... I kind of feel like he's going to be in every book after this as a major player, and <laughs> I think they get. I think it gets worse. Um, which anyway, that's that comment. Uh, I will not explain that comment right now. But anyway, um, I thought it was really interesting that he wasn't really in it, and I kept kind of waiting for him to show up. And in an interesting way, it almost seemed like the threat, like. So, there's these things called Dementors, which are these Azkaban prison guards, and the 
reason the book is called The Prisoner of Azkaban, one of many, is that a prisoner has escaped from Azkaban. That's Sirius Black. That's, um, well, that's Sirius Black, and he's a serious problem. And, um, it's interesting how evil and wicked the Dementors are and what it is that they're supposed to do. It's, I like, morally repugnant, and it's shocking that that would be something in the world of Harry Potter. Like, the, you know, there's the defense against the dark arts. They expose the Hogwarts students to some of the dark arts stuff. Uh, that's because it's an ugly reality that the wizarding world isn't just, uh, you know, refilling... It's not just every flavored beans and uh, plates of sandwiches that magically refill themselves. It's, you know, this dark side. There's werewolves. There's vampires. There's, uh, I mean, for crying out loud, in, uh, there was a, we, we saw somebody feasting on the corpse drinking the blood of a unicorn in one of these books. So, I mean, there are dark and evil things, and there is real legitimate danger. And that's kind of all offset by the fact that you have this very positive, very happy, very... Um, you know, wonderful and fantastical world that Harry gets to uh, live in. Uh, it's kind of even more interesting because the... <clears throat> excuse me. The Muggle world, the world where Harry starts off each book living with the Dursleys, is in some ways worse than, <laughs> than the Wizarding world that has all these dangers. And it's alarming, it's shocking to me that uh, that could be the case and I think that goes to I think it's a credit to Rowling and how awful she's able to make the Dursleys and the thing is they're not they're not as evil as they could be it's not the Manson family but uh, it is or and perhaps not but it is a remarkably realistic depiction of what an abusive home life would look like for a kid in Harry's position. And and not only is that sort of family dynamic all too real, it's all too common, I would say. I'm not going to pull statistics or talk about how many abusive homes there are, and I'm not going to say there's an epidemic of child abuse in you know this country or any other, but it's a fact of life that children are abused and ill-treated by their own families, and when I say that, I mean their own nuclear families, their mother, their father, their siblings, uh, but also by, you know, secondary or tertiary uh, relatives as well, who you would call, or who you might call uh, extended family. And um, I've heard of different countries, uh, Haiti, India, for example, um, <laughs> uh, that they will, like, if a parent dies and a child or children are orphaned, they are taken in. I've actually heard this from somebody in the Philippines as well, I believe, um, that they will be taken in uh, to live with one of their relatives, but they will basically become like a servant to the relatives. And that can, the severity of that and how awful that is for the person, uh, believe it or not, because we live in a world of nuance and... Uh, I don't know, uniqueness or singularity, not singularity, that's the wrong word I'm looking for. Uh, we live in a world of nuance. It depends. It varies family to family. It varies culture to culture. Um, some cultures are tolerable or tolerate things that are more severe than others, and certain families within those distinct cultures have their own microcultures which tolerate more or less abusive and terrible behavior. But I was shocked at the end of the book, and it's funny because it kind of gets bookended, and, but when it's bookend, bookended at the end of the book, it's 
a much happier thing and you feel, or I felt more positive about it. Anyway, I felt in a lot of ways like Harry's life with the Dursleys and in the Muggle world is worse than what he experiences at Hogwarts. And I can't quite tell how long the term is he gets out. Well, I don't know when he goes back, but it's sometime in the summer he goes back to Hogwarts, to the Dursleys, and then September 1st is when term starts at Hogwarts. So, um, I live in the U.S. I feel like that's only like a two-month break maybe they get, maybe three at the most. So that's you know, good for him that it's a boarding school and he gets to get away from the Dursleys for so much of the year. But regardless, and, and then honestly, that kind of makes it feel weird that uh, you end the book at the end of the term, essentially, and then the next book starts off in the middle of the summer or a couple weeks before he goes back to Hogwarts. It almost feels like it's not enough of a break. But then again, uh, the highlights that are covered that make up the, I guess, plot of the books, um, that's structured in such a way that you're not you're skipping over most of the year. Um, so it's really like he has these terrible breaks that he has to go back to the Dursleys. Anyway, as much as I am struggling to place Harry Potter strictly in a genre, it's more or less fantasy, and I don't want to ruin all the cool fantasy stuff by dwelling on how horrible the Dursleys are and the, you know, very real facts of child abuse, you know, all over the world. So, uh, I will swerve away from those, and I will, again, try to be mostly spoiler-free, because this is a casual book chat, and maybe I'll just go into, like, a thing. And I've already spoiled the fact that Voldemort's basically not in this book at all. Um, so... What will I talk about? <laughs> uh, I'll talk about the fact that it's funny that Hermione and Ron and Harry uh, are all skeptical of their divination teacher. And divination, I guess, would be, you know, divining the future, trying to use you know, tea leaves and crystal balls and things like that to find the future. And they have this teacher who predicts that Harry is going to die. And... You know, she's very serious about it. It's very dire, and it kind of freaks him out in the beginning. Uh, but then as time goes on, they just believe in this woman less and less and less. And it's really funny to see how, uh, like, I don't know. It, it, it's really funny to see how that develops, and it turns into a, I would say, a complete gag. And I don't, I mean, it's not an ill-formed gag. It's a very well-constructed gag. And basically, the one time she has a, an actual, you know, accurate vision of the future, whatever, it's, uh, you're not entirely sure that she's in complete control of herself, which is kind of funny, so, um, and maybe that's the, uh, appearance of Voldemort, who knows, um, so, I thought that was pretty interesting, um, I, <laughs> I was, uh, thinking about this book, and I was thinking, I, I actually like Snape, um, he's actually an interesting character, he's kind of cool, I kind of like the things that he's doing, he seemed very friendly with, uh, um, one of the professors, Professor Lupin, who's the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, which is, he's the best Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher we've seen in these three books, because uh, Coral and, um, Lockhart were not good, uh, and I mean that on multiple levels, and then now this guy, Lupin, is good. He's really excellent, and he was a lot of fun. Um, there's sometimes Rowling's naming conventions bother me because it feels like, oh, that's too obvious, and it was funny. I was telling my daughter about some of the, the thoughts I have because she's reading through these at the same time pretty much, and uh, I think she was snickering uh, when she thought I couldn't see because I was predicting some things because I was, I've seen this movie years ago, you know, probably when it first came out or so, uh, and then I said, you know, based on, you know, my knowledge of books and, you know, whatever, these are my guesses for what's going on. And I was, like, semi-right 
on some things, but just my memory was foggy, and then my prediction was off. But it was still fun to speculate, and I was able to speculate based on the names, which, uh, like, I was thinking then again about what is Snape's name, and he's part of House Slytherin, and his name is Snape, and Snape uh, rhymes with snake. It just has one letter, a, a K to a P. And... Uh, Cerverus, he's a severe snake man, and, uh, you know, he's a severe teacher who, you know, is from House Slytherin, favors House Slytherin, and all that stuff, so that might be the extent of his name, but I was honestly really, I, I basically turned against him at, like, the, I don't know, 60% point through, or, I don't know, somewhere about, about three quarters or, or less uh, through the book, I basically turned around, and I thought, I do not like this man, and... I was never disappointed with his severity, although maybe that was mostly from him being played in the movies by... I, don't know, I can't remember the, the name of the gentleman who played him, but he died a couple of years ago. And I really enjoyed him in that role, um, almost as much as I enjoyed him as Hans Gruber in Die Hard. But uh, we're not going to talk about Die Hard. So, anyway, I just thought it was really interesting uh, how... I was feeling so positive, and I'd even told her when I was a quarter or third or maybe halfway through the book, I really like Snape. It's, it's funny, um, but he seems like an okay. He's helping Lupin. Um, he's, you know, trying to be responsible. He's trying to do the right thing. He, you know, even he gets, like, the chance to play the hero in this book. But, and from his perspective, he really is being heroic. Um, but the prime motivator that causes him to dislike Harry and mistrust people in certain ways and uh, just this incident that happened to him while he was a student at Hogwarts it like really changed my perspective on him and made me think this guy's kind of a the kindest most respectful thing I can say is that I'm very disappointed that what happened affected him in such a way, and I'm surprised that it seems like he has such a fussy or finicky personality, and that's the real motivator of why he is the way he is, or at least that's what Rowling has revealed at this point in the book series, in the story overall, and it's, uh, it's surprising and disappointing. I, I really don't like it. Um, he seemed cool to me before that big revelation. Things not always being what they seem, I think might be, if, if it's not a theme, or if it's not the theme, it's a theme or a thematic element in this particular book. So, I don't, I, 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 I kind of know some stuff about the rest of the Harry Potter story, and I think that might be related, or like some setup is being done for that, perhaps. I'm not 100% sure, but it's, uh, it's interesting that, I don't know. That could be what it's about. It might not be what it's about, which is a, a very silly statement to make. It's not profound at all. But this is a casual book chat, so I don't really feel the pressure to perform and give you amazing insights. A quick addendum before I let myself officially finish the episode. One of the things that I found remarkable about this book, and it really hit me somewhere in the beginning, probably right before Harry went off to Hogwarts, which is something I mentioned in the beginning uh, of this casual book chat because I talked about how it's kind of bookended by uh, you feel one way about Harry and his situation with the Dursleys, and then by the end of it you feel kind of the same way, but there's some optimism. And uh, it comes down to, I think, this interesting element which is shared with 
Spider-Man, of all things, the Spider-Man comics. Well, yeah, the Spider-Man comics. I'm not going to say the movies except for maybe the Raimi McGuire movies. Um, But there is a sense that despite, (laughs) in spite of everything that Harry has in the Wizarding World, in spite of all his power and the prestige and the fame of being the boy who lived, he's still just a boy to the Dursleys. And none of his magic, none of the magic in his life that he experiences at Hogwarts or with the Weasleys or anywhere else uh, really matters when it comes to his life with the Dursleys or at the Dursleys. He's just Harry. That's all he is in the Muggle world, for now at least. And none of the great power and the accomplishments help him to overcome or rise above what he faces. I don't know if I would call Harry a role model or if he's just somebody that a young reader can identify with. Really, any reader can identify with, as I mentioned previously. Uh, But I really think it's special and wonderful that he faces these challenges. And when it comes down to it, when it comes down to dealing with the Dursleys, he and you and I have the same recourse. We can kind of <laughs> exhibit long-suffering. We can bear with the situation, uh, keep a stiff upper lip if you want to be British about it, and, or we can break down and have a tantrum or freak out or you know, give in to our baser instincts and really sink to the level of these people who are challenging us in these, partic- in these particular ways. And I think it presents a really interesting like moral choice and question, but also it just makes him so much more relatable and I think it adds a lot of sympathy to to his character arc, to his struggles and to his story. And I think that's really special. I think that's there's like a, there's a magic in that, so to speak. Um, which is that despite all the fantastical elements, the mundane down to earth things still matter and they still hurt. And it's almost like an affirmation that, you know what? Yeah, you're special. People care about you. Uh, you have, you know, whatever you have in your life that's good or sets you apart is great. But at the end of the day, you're still a person. And you can still be hurt by others. And there's a comfort in that. I think there's a comfort in that. It's very human. And it's very humane and very... I don't know. I just think there's a comfort in saying, you know, this too shall pass, but this too shall endure. (laughs) And if you're going to live life, you're going to suffer. But you don't have to be miserable about it. To some extent. I think that's that's part of what's being said here. And I like it. I just, I just, I find it really endearing. I hope you enjoyed that. Go to mjmunoz.com to leave any questions, comments, or other feedback you might have. There you can find all of my analysis, art, and fiction. I cover books, tokusatsu, comic books, anime, and more. Look around. You're sure to find something else that you'll enjoy as well. This has been a Story Over Everything production.